Our passage this morning is from 1 Corinthians 15, the first eight verses. And the Apostle Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is God's word for us this morning. So, imagine, suppose someone comes to you and and says, I I, I know you go to church and you're a Christian, and um, I don't know anything about all that. What should I know? What what would, you know, what's the deal? With all the stuff. Why do you go and and what's it all about? What if someone came to you? Now, mind you, this is very hypothetical. No one has ever actually asked me that question. You know, they they always have some weird question about, you know, did Adam and Eve have have belly buttons, you know. But, But anyways, theoretically, let's say someone did ask you, you know, what's it all about? What's the things I need to know? What would you say? Should you just, well, here, here's a Bible. Read this, right? Well, there's a lot in here, and I've had people start to read it, and then they get really confused because there's battles and things, and like that, you know, what, what truths would you convey out of the scriptures that, that's really, they need to know? Maybe you say, well, I don't know, why don't you come to church with me, you know, like, but before they go to church, they, they want to know, I need to know what it's all about before I take that step. So that's what we're talking about this morning. What's that one thing to describe and the one word the Bible uses to describe the message that's the core truth and that is the word, the gospel. The gospel's not the same as saying the Bible. The gospel is a specific message. It's the message specifically about Jesus. That is the gospel. If you start reading the Bible, you're going to encounter three types of teachings, three components out of the scriptures. One of them is wisdom. Wisdom is the knowledge of God and the way things work within the world. As you read the scriptures, you'll get wisdom for life, insights into human nature, through the stories, through the, the, some of the sayings. You, you get into Proverbs, and there's so much wisdom about how to live life and navigate things. There's also just the knowledge of God and his ways and creation. So that's one component that you'll discover as you read the word. A second one is law. And this is the commands and instructions given by God for people to follow. You see, we're created by God, and and therefore, 
obedience. It says in um, Psalm 96.7, uh, 96.6, that for, for he is our maker, and we are the sheep of his hand. And, and so we owe to God, as we owe to him, our The law that God expects from us. You know, and you, you might encounter things like do not murder, do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery, and other other components of the law. So you'll you'll find that in here. But then there's one third component that's a little more hard to grasp, hard to, to nail down at times, and that is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God's plan of salvation through his son, Jesus. It's the message of how he would save us, how he would bring us to himself. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Greek. So it's, it's the, the message about salvation, open now to all peoples, Jews, Greeks, and, and beyond. So one way to, to try to get, get a finger on what is the gospel is, is a set of propositions that we, we learn about and believe. And so I, I have those. If, I would encourage you, I, I'm going to cover a lot of territory this morning, and there's no screen, so... You might, it really might help to have this. I have, I actually have two different handouts. I got I, I get out of control sometimes. One of them is just an outline, if that helps you to follow that. And then the other is the fill in the blank types. Some of you love to fill in the blank. Some of you not so much. So, and also I have all the scriptures that I'm going to cite. So anyways, in, on the outline part, I have the different um, propositions, truths. And the first truth is the one I've already shared. We were created by God and owe to him both our obedience and worship. And that, um, that he is our maker, we are the people of his, of his pasture, the sheep under his care. And therefore, we owe to God our obedience. That, I think, used to be a general assumption, at least in, in, the, in America, right? At, nowadays, I, I don't know if generally people would believe that. Even those who didn't believe in God or accept God would have understood that to be true. But nowadays, I don't think not so much. So sometimes if we're conveying to someone, they might, they might disagree with that line right away, that we owe to God anything. They would say, well, it's my life. I do what I want with it. But according to the, the, the scriptures, we do owe to God, not just our obedience, but our worship. He is the rightful king. The second proposition is that each and every person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, fallen short of the standards and expectations God has laid upon us. We've, we, don't, we haven't lived up to what God has said. And this is not just, we're not talking just the, you know, the bad people, that, that the, the Pope and the Billy Graham and all of us have fallen short, and we continue to fall short. Of God's ex- we are sinful people. We, sinfulness is rooted in our lives. And, and I think this is not something we can convince anyone of. That, that 
Convincing only comes as the Holy Spirit convicts their heart. It is so easy for us to see the sinfulness of others, right? We can, we can with great clarity see where other people go wrong. Somehow, well, we have reasons why we did that. It's not so bad. And it's only through the Holy Spirit convicting our heart that we come to understand, I'm a sinful man, and I need God's grace. The third proposition is that sin has a cost. Because of sin, we face both death and eternal separation from God. It says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we've earned because of our sin is to rightfully, not just physical death, but even separation from God, and that we will ultimately face a judgment. For it is destined for man to, to die once and then face the judgment of God. There's a, a word, H-E double hockey sticks, right? What, you know, it's one of those, I, I, you know, we don't use it a lot. Um, be, I don't use it all the time because I think there's so many misconceptions. People start picturing Dante's Inferno, right? So when I talk about that idea, though, that we are, because of our sin, we are set to be eternally separated from God. And if God is the source of all joy and goodness and peace and, and everything that we could ever want, and if we get cut off from that with no hope of ever returning, we get shut out of, from that for eternity, that is hell. That is awfulness, never-ending. Jesus talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so there's, there's, a, great, there's a great seriousness to this message. Um. And that's, that's the, the, the reality that we don't always want to face. But then if we keep going, then the good news is this. God did not give up on us. Instead, he sent his one and only son to open the door of salvation. That Christ demonstrates his love for us in this, or God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He took the penalty of our sin upon himself. It says, Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That somehow this death that took place 2,000 years ago paid that, that cost so that we can now be right with God. And, and we have a way into eternal life. And how do we get into that eternal life? Then the, the final proposition is by putting our faith in Jesus, the Son of God, we can be saved and are accepted as children of God. Romans 10, 10 9 and 10. Let me go ahead and read that. Um, says that if we confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So that, that gives a mechanism for, for responding to Jesus, believing in our heart, but also a public declaration. Um, and John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We become sons and daughters of God. We're entered into this new relationship. So those five propositions are one way of describing the good news. And maybe... Can, can, 
would anyone say, have you heard the gospel presented in that way before? Yeah? You know, sometimes there's illustrations that go with it, you know, uh, a chasm with a bridge or a chair and a sin wall. You know, there's sometimes illustrations that help highlight those truths. And this is a great way to help get an understanding of what Jesus' death meant. What I want to do as we move on, though, is, is think about, I think this is one facet of the glorious diamond that is the gospel. And I want to see a little broader picture of the gospel. I think that gives a better understanding. And so let's start by looking at what Paul summarized the gospel, our main text, 1 Corinthians 15. So when the Apostle Paul, who's the one that, that talks most about the gospel, he, he says, he gives us in this passage, he, he gives a quick story. Here's how it is. He starts off by saying, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, um, which you received. So he had gone to the city of Corinth, and when he proclaimed there, what did he proclaim? The message of the gospel. Not, not the whole scriptures per se. I mean, he would teach the scriptures, but his focus was on the gospel. And, and that word in Greek is evangelion. So just to break that word down, the, the, translated as the gospel, the angelion part is the word for message. The angelion is the message. And in Greek, if you put an E-U in front of something, it, it means good or well. So a eulogy is a good word. Euphonious means it has a good sound to it. Um, but since angelion starts with a vowel, instead of E-U, it's E-V. So it becomes evangelion, but it's the same idea. The good message, the good news. That's the, the, the word. And in fact, where it says of the, the, the evangelion, I preached to you, the word I preached is the word gospel put in verb form. Egalisamen. So he's saying, I would remind you, brother, of the gospel that I gospeled to you, you know, back in then. It's, it's, it's this emphasis. Um, so it's the good news. And, and when, so when Paul had shared this message, says they believe it, they received it, they put their trust in it, and so it, it's the message by which they had become saved. And then he says, if you hold fast to the word I gospeled to you, unless you believed in vain. So, okay, I, 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 wanted, I look closer at that, and w- what's that word in vain mean? Well, when I, I look, it can mean with cause in other places. Heedlessly. Unless you have believed heedlessly. And I was thinking about what does that mean? How do you believe heedlessly? And I think what it means is you accept it without letting it sink in. Right? You, you accept it as a proposition to be believed, but it doesn't, you don't really respond. You don't really, you ever have someone say something and say, oh, yeah, yeah, right, 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 I believe that. Right? That's to believe without cause. You're not really thinking about it in your life. He says, if you, if you do that, then maybe you, you don't really believe. It's just you're, you're saying whatever it takes to, to kind of keep moving. But if you put your faith in this, it is the way in which we are saved. Verse 3, 
Now he gets into what is the gospel. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. So the gospel is of first importance, what I also received. He's using technical, formal language. In a world before there were books, you, you pass things down by oral tradition. And so it says, what I received, I now deliver to you. You would memorize certain things. And so what he's doing is almost like a memorized creed. Okay, so now we get to it. Verse 4 says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So note, the death of Jesus is at the center of the gospel, just like it was and we had talked before. Um, but also in this is the importance of the resurrection. He was raised from the dead and it all happened According to the scriptures, according to the, 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 the Bible. He goes on in verse 5. And then so, you know, you had the, the empty tomb, right? He was buried, but he raised from the dead. So the tomb is empty. But our, our faith is built not just on the empty tomb, but also that Jesus appeared. And so it says, and then he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, um, first of the Apostle Peter, and then to the 12. And th that event's recorded in the, the, the Gospels. Uh, it's happening the, the night of the resurrection when he came into the, the upper room and Jesus appeared to them. And then it goes on, it says, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most believe that that's correlated to Matthew 28, where Jesus appeared to a great crowd. So we find out here there were actually 500 brothers. As an aside, Paul says, most of whom are still alive, meaning you could ask them, right? They're, they're askable about this. They, you can find them and say, did this really happen? And they could tell you at the time he wrote Corinthians. Though he does say, though some have fallen asleep. I, I love how Paul, why does he say, though some have died? Like, that's what he means. Why? Because if you know Jesus, you're not really dead. You're alive in him. So Paul always talks about the death of believers as being falling asleep because he knows that they're still alive with Christ. Um, and then he goes on to say, but most are still alive, some have fallen asleep. And then he, then he appeared to James. Now this is um, not James, the, one of the apostles, this is James the elder. James the apostle had actually been beheaded. He's one of those who's fallen asleep. Um, but James the elder who wrote the letter of James. Um, and so, and then he appeared to all the apostles. This could really be corresponding to the beginning of Acts, where Jesus appeared again before he was ascended into heaven. And then he says, last of all, he appeared to me. As one untimely born. What does that mean? Well, he's saying how he, he, he wasn't a follower of Jesus at the time of the resurrection. He was actually persecuted the church. But Jesus, a few years after the resurrection, appeared to him in a special way along the road and called him to be an apostle and, and called him into the, the work of God. So saying, last of all, he even appeared to me a guy who was going against his church. A few things to notice if you put this all together. 
the resurrection gets a lot more emphasis, a lot more play than the crucifixion. Now, both are there and both are important. But in our first way we looked at the, the, the gospel as the propositions, the resurrection is almost an afterthought. It doesn't even hardly get mentioned. But, but Paul seems to see the resurrection as central to the gospel. Um, and then the other thing is it keeps saying according to the scriptures. In other words, it puts the context of the death of Christ and the resurrection within the context of the whole Bible. And that's what I want to think about. I want us to think of the gospel and the way I've come to really get my head around it is the gospel is a story woven throughout the entire Bible that points ahead to Jesus. Another way, if you just, the broadest way to look at the story, we were lost and Jesus came after us. God sent his son to reclaim us. And that story is woven all the way from the beginning to the end. And that's what I want to do. And that's where I'm going to go through a lot of scriptures really fast. And so I hope I don't lose you. Um, this handout, you could always look back if, if, I, if I go too fast. But I want to I wanna convey that story. Because it starts really in Genesis 1 and 2, where it talks about God making human beings. And it says that we were made in the image of God. Male and female. Men and women are made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means we're not just created just so that we worship and obey God. We were made to know God. God made us in his image because we can interrelate with him. And we're designed to know and be known by God. That's relationship language. That's the purpose for which God made us. And then in Genesis 3, we learn that humanity fell into sin. That the first couple, Adam and Eve, they they listened to God's enemy. They, they did what they wanted to do instead of being obedient to God and they were led into and made the choice to sin against God and that caused a brokenness in human beings and every human being since. Now, as you read through Genesis, you see it's not just, well, Genesis 3. They fell and then they kept falling. What happened after, after you know, they got after this, the first sin, the, the next thing that happens is one of their sons kills another. Cain kills his brother Abel. You get the first murder. And then you see humanity de- delve down into such great violence that God says, I, I can't take it. And he sends a flood. Wipes out almost all of humanity that, that become that bad. And then even, you know, that Noah and his family survive. Um, God protects them. But it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact we're still broken, sinful people. Sin comes right back. And then the next thing you see is humanity says, we don't need God. We can get to heaven on our own. And they start building a great tower to heaven. And God knocks that down, right? Keeps that from happening. By the end of Genesis 11, humanity had lost touch with God. They knew not the God as creator. In fact, instead, instead of giving him their worship, they were worshiping all these other false gods. And there was hardly any left that even knew God and what he was about. 
God could have left us. But instead, he began the great rescue plan. He starts by picking one man, Abraham. And and with Abraham and his descendants, he begins a long relationship. And through that relationship, God will reteach humanity about himself. He'll reintroduce himself to people. And so Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you end up with the people of Israel. And God reveals to them his nature, his character, his ways. And, and it's, it's a, a, he makes a covenant with them. And even as they fall short of the covenant, God continues the plan. He continues to say, I'm with you. Learn from me, follow me. And, and the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the rest of the Old Testament, we see two things. We see the Lord God revealing himself as he works with his chosen people. And God is showing himself to all of us because it's recorded in Scripture. But we learn to see God and what he's like. But the other thing we see in the rest of that Hebrew Bible is the sinfulness of people and the incredible power that sin has over us. Over us. Over and over again, we fall short of God's desires and plans. And we see we cannot save ourselves. Even the best of the leaders all get caught up in, in the corruption of sin. The, the peak story is King David, who was, who was the man after God's own heart and did so many good things. And then the corruption of sin overtakes him, and he does some of the worst things. Right? And we see that with every human leader. And in the midst of that, the prophets keep speaking of one who will come, a Messiah, God himself coming to redeem his people from their sins. There's hints and there's prophecies, and it starts to take shape that no human could save us. We're still waiting for that one. In Revelation 5, there's a great picture of this truth. If I can, almost as an aside, talk about that. In Revelation 5, it's a vision of what's taking place in the throne room of God. And it, so it's after Jesus and after the... But it's, it's a picture of how Jesus brought salvation. And, and John sees a scroll with seven seals. And that scroll represents God's plan of redemption, God's plan to save humanity. And then a voice asks, who is worthy to open the scroll? And and it's declared no one could open the scroll. No one is worthy. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is worthy to open the scroll. And it says, so John weeps. You see, no, no one in heaven, no, no angelic power could, could complete God's plan of salvation because it had to be someone who was a human being. And no one on earth, no human, could because we're all corrupted by our sin. And so no human on earth could do it. And no one under the earth, no one who's dead, who used to live, could ever do it because they too were corrupted and dead, dead now in their sins. No person, no angelic power could bring the salvation. And so John is weeping over the, 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 
the bad news in a sense of that. And then he's told, weep no more. Behold, God has provided what humanity could not do in saving itself. The Lord has provided the one who could. And he says, behold, the Lion of Judah, which is, is code words for the Messiah who is the King of the Jews. The, the Lion of Judah be the King over the Jews. And then when John looks, instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb that was slain. This is why no human could do it. The one had to be both powerful and authoritative and yet had to be willing to lay down his life and give of himself and be sacrificed for the sins of others. No human would do that. And so God sent his one and only son to do what no one else could do. When Mark was the first one to write the story, he says, let me tell you, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Mark says, let me tell you the, let me tell you the gospel. And what Mark did is he wrote the whole story of Jesus because Jesus demonstrated the gospel. He demonstrated the good news in how he cared for people, how he responded to the poor, the hurting, the blind, everything he did and in, in the, the, the story of Mark is, is his caring for people, showing, demonstrating the good news. Um, but ultimately, you see that the answer would come when Jesus said, I came, the Son of Man came, referring to himself, not to be served, even though he was the king, right? He was the Lion of Judah. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. So it would be in the giving of his life he would begin the work of freeing us from our sinful corruption. So Jesus purchased us with his blood. And the, the death of Jesus is what um, pays the ransom so that we can come back to God. And then the resurrection is the demonstration that he is now able to give us life in, again, back to Revelation, Jesus, the risen Jesus declares, I died and behold, I'm alive again and I hold the keys of death and Hades because he's the one who died and gave his life and now is resurrected. He holds that key and he can open the door. The resurrection was the, the victory declaration and the beginning of new life for his people. And now it said that we can be united with Christ and join him. That's, that's the way of salvation. To be saved is to be in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We know him, he knows us, he lives in us. And the most common way of call, referring to someone who's a Christian in the scriptures, New Testament, is one who's in Christ, right? We're, we're in him. He, we're in him and he's in us. That's... That's what it's about. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He begins to, to work that new life into us. We are his, and because we are his and we're these new creatures, we now become part of the story. The story of the gospel now continues to work through us, right? 
the, the, the story is woven throughout, and it's woven now into our lives, and we get to be a part of God and how he's redeeming this world and setting everything right. Our story gets woven into Christ's story. And, and here's the good news. It, it, it is, it's not just a ticket to heaven. It's not just about getting up to heaven when we die. It, that's included, right? Fear not, O people of God. If you die and you know Jesus, you are alive in him. So that's, that's, that's thrown in. But God is about so much more. And let me read from Romans 8 what, that, what Paul's description of what this whole thing is leading to. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When, when sin entered the world, it corrupted the whole world. And now God's plan is the redemption of all that he made, the redemption of creation, the, the setting everything right again. And, and the best part of it all is, is setting right his people setting right us. And it says creation itself can't wait to see what it looks like when the sons and daughters of God are revealed in their fullness. It's like that the glory that will be alive within us is more than we can imagine or, or take in. And it says creation itself waits with eager expectation for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. That's what God is about He's changing us. He's predestined us to become like Christ, not just in res resurrected form, but changing us to become like Christ in our inner heart as well as with a glorified body. One day we will see it. That is the gospel message, the story of, of all that Christ is doing and all that he plans yet to do as we sign on to him. So I have two exhortations. First of all, if you have never taken in or heard the story, the good news of Jesus, I would invite you to give a clear yes. I would invite you to think it out, not, not heedlessly, not without cause, but that you would take in this, you would seek to understand what it's about and, and say yes to Jesus being in your life. If you've never taken that step or if you're not even sure, I want you to add your name to the story. And you could do that in your seats this morning. You could say, Lord, I never quite realized what this all meant. But I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to say yes to you. If you make that decision, whether it's this morning or some other time, talk to, to a, a mature believer. Talk to me. Call me. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Or, or maybe someone you know who, who you know is a follower of Christ and, and ask them, what does it mean? How do I get started in this? But I just want to, first of all, invite anyone here, if God has led you here, he's led you here because he wants to know you and be in your life. And he's just waiting for you to say yes to him. My second exhortation applies to all of us is that we would be good news people that we would be gospel-centered in our focus here at East Glenville. That, 
that we would remember that the, the, the good news of Jesus changes everything. And that our, our message, if someone is asking, is not just, well, yeah, read the Bible and, you know, you better do what God says, that we would be convinced that God is so good and he's made a change in our life. The, when I think about, I guess what I'm saying is when you read the scriptures, I want you to see the gospel woven into it. And it comes up all over the place. There, there's the law, right? Sometimes Christians get focused on the law. Well, the law says, you know, love your neighbor, but, you know, that's all you need to do. Jesus says, don't just love your neighbor. Love your enemy as well. That's the gospel. You know, the law says, you know, you better, you better give what you owe. The gospel says, freely you have received, freely give. Right? The law says, well, you should forgive your brother or sister up to seven times. The gospel says, not just seven times, but 70 times seven. Right? The gospel isn't just what we owe or deserve. We've received so much better. Let's become people who, who give beyond what, what is deserved. Let's become gospel-centered people. And let that rule in our lives. Not just that we're going around preaching, but that everything we do is, is Jesus living out of us. And let's see what God does with that. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the story of the good news that when we were lost and separated from you, Jesus, you came after us. You came to bring us back. You came to, to give us not what we deserved, not the judgment that we were owed, but instead you came to give us love and grace beyond what we could imagine. May you continue to pour out your grace upon us and may you teach us how to, how to share that grace with those around us as well. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.